Have you ever had a time in your life where fear just caused you to behave irrationally? I'm finding myself back in San Antonio, the city I grew up in. I'm a sophomore in high school, and my parents are getting ready to go out for the evening. They leave me with one instruction. Luke, don't wait up for us. We'll be late. Take care of the house. We'll see you in the morning. Immediately, I formed a plan for the evening. First a swim, then pizza, and some reading time. I was at the time taking a literature class that intended to provide insights into a variety of genres, including the genre that explores real-life issues associated with crime. So the, the book our professor had assigned was titled Helter Skelter, a behind-the-scenes look at the why underneath the murders committed by the Manson family on the evenings of August 8 to 10, 1969. The book was, in a word, disturbing. So if you remember the history with me, Charles Manson had groomed a group of followers, the Manson family, that included really a disenfranchised group of young adults trying to find a place to belong, a place where happiness and meaning might be discovered, and Manson was all too glad to provide such. A failed musician, Manson had become obsessed with an apocalyptic vision of the future. His vision, if you remember this, grew out of a music album that had been released by the stratospherically popular Beatles group. The name of the album was the 1968 White Album, an album which Manson maintained was based upon ideas that the Beatles had taken from him. In particular, Manson was fixated on one song titled Helter Skelter. Utilizing the song as his basis, Manson convinced his family members that a race war was coming in America, a war in which blacks would overthrow whites, leaving him, Manson, to control or run the world. After all, he maintained that the blacks would need a white man to help them. Wow. In order to precipitate this, Manson, over a two-day period, sent members of his family into the homes of Roman Polanski and his wife Sharon Tate, along with Lino Bianca and his wife Rosemary. Utilizing knives, guns, Manson family members murdered seven people, including movie actress Sharon Tate, who was pregnant at the time, and coffee heiress Abigail Folgers. So what made the murders gruesome is the way that they were carried out. Uh, they were brutal. They included carving words into the flesh of victims, using their blood to write messages on the walls of homes. So the more I read this book, the more terrified I became. And then it happened. The wind began to blow outside. Our home in San Antonio was located just outside the city limits on an acreage. So what that meant is if somebody wanted to, they could easily enter the property and commit a crime, even a helter-skelter crime. No one would hear. No one would know. As the wind began to blow, unbeknownst to me, a limb from one of the live oak trees on our property began to, to come across our roof, making a scratching sound. Put, put those things together, the book, the wind, the sound, coming from somewhere I didn't know where, and all of a sudden, I found a big dose of irrational fear running through me. What happened next, I can, I can hardly believe when I look back at that night. As fear rose up inside of me, I began to convince myself, now remember, I was home alone by myself, that someone was breaking into our home. Without thinking, I grabbed the 243 Magnum rifle that hung on my wall. I made sure that it was loaded, and I went to my parents' room where the bathroom was interior. It was windowless. 
Quietly, I locked the door and sat down on the side of the bathtub with my rifle aimed at the door. I'm, I, I look back at that, and I'm convinced. If someone would have tried to open that door, I would have fired. I wasn't thinking straight. I was scared. I was worked up. I would have. I, I just know I would have fired. Fortunately, I never had to. I sat in that bathroom for hours until just as they had told me, my parents came home. When I heard them, and I knew it was them, by the sound of their voices, I sat the gun down and came out. I was shaken, but okay. Oh, and by the way, I've always been thankful that my parents, when they figured out what happened to me, didn't go crazy. They calmly diffused what could have turned out to be a disastrous situation. So let me tell you why I'm sharing this with you. On our podcast today, I want to continue our discussion of a topic that we began a couple weeks ago. We're talking about Antichrist. And what the Bible means by that term. Here's the reality. A lot of people, when they hear the word Antichrist, have almost a helter-skelter-like image come into their mind. Hear the word Antichrist and you think monster. Why? Well, I think in part, it's our culture. Our culture has over years portrayed Antichrist as a a monster, uh, portrayed him in scary ways. But the question I'm putting on the table is, does the Bible? Here's what we're discovering. No, it does not. In fact, one of the first things that you discover when you look at the Bible is that the scriptures use the term Antichrist carefully. The term is not used often. To be specific, it shows up only four times in the Bible. First John twice, First uh, John 4, Second John 7. When the term is used, it does not refer to a monster, but to people. Now, last week we learned a little bit about what people. First... We learned that the term Antichrist, while it can be used in the singular, is also used in the plural. Remember John, as he writes uh, his little epistles, writing at the end of the first century, he states, not only is the Antichrist present in the first century, not only is he present and active then, but he says there's many of them. He calls them the Antichristoi, plural, Antichrists. They were in John's time and they're here today. Secondly, we learn that one of the primary places that you should expect to discover a plurality of Antichrists is within, not outside of, but within the church. Now, I'll say that this sometimes surprises people. I'll say to someone, there are pastors in the church today who are Antichrists. And I'm I'm telling you, I'll get a look. What? What? What are you saying? That the church is supposed to be the good guy. How can you say there are pastors who are antichrists. That doesn't sound right, but it is. In fact, this is exactly what John is teaching. And what makes his teaching so so dangerous is the reality that people still have enough trust in the church that they can't see the deception right in front of them through those antichrists that occupy the position of church pastor. I think that we're seeing that in our world today. So today I want to move forward. I want to look at a second scripture, namely Revelation 13, where we discover that there's a second primary institution in which we ought to expect to discover antichrists, again, plural. And that particular institution would be politics, the political systems of our world. I want to start today with Revelation 13, 1 to 8. I'm going to begin by just reading verses 1 to 4. We're going to ask the Spirit to just give us his direction. 
so Lord, we do. We pray for that. Would you give us your direction as we open up this last book of the Bible, the Revelation chapter 13. Give us your direction, we pray. Amen. All right, let's just go ahead and read this. Is Again, if you're reading along, it's Revelation 13, verses 1 to 4. It reads as follows. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal womb, but its mortal womb was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? End quote. That's a mouthful. Don't you love Revelation? I, I love Revelation. Just the picturesque language. So, so what's John talking about here? I want to walk through a little bit of this because I want you to see in these words what John is lifting up. Namely, he's teaching us here that, this, that there's a second realm in which we ought to expect Antichrist to be at work, namely the political realm. So I want to start with the, uh, the word beast. John says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. So what, is, what does he mean by that? Remember, the Revelation is a book under inspiration that uses an apocalyptic genre. What that means is that the words John uses throughout the Revelation are symbolic while pointing to specific real-life people, places, and events. So symbols, don't read them literally, but they are the ones that point to literal, real-life people. So in this regard, the word beast, it does not refer to a monster. So this is not helter-skelter, but rather to a real-life earthly entity. So the question is, what entity? Here, John tells us immediately. He notes for us that the beast that he's talking about has ten horns and seven heads. Those words are significant for two reasons. First is the word horns. What does it mean in the Bible? Horns. In the Bible, this term is often a symbol for what? Power. If you will allow, in our world today, political power. Horns. Political power. Now I want to stop for a minute and recognize something. Political systems, in and of themselves, have their being in God's kingdom master plan. I hope we know that. They are God's creation for the purpose of the good of his kingdom. I think of Paul's words in Romans chapter 13. Remember what Paul says about political systems? He tells us God created them and did so for our good. Just listen to these words. This is Romans chapter 13. Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant. The government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, the government, does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So in your mind, underscore a couple of things. Paul's telling us that all earthly political systems operate under the authority of God, good or bad. Although this is outside of our ability to understand, God has used and is using every 
single, I want you to hear this, every single political system that has existed or does exist for the purpose of his kingdom. I'm going to say that again. Kind of get this in your mind. Our mind can't comprehend it, but, but listen to it anyway. God has used and is using every single political system that has existed or does exist for the purpose of his kingdom. So we kind of struggle with that. We would say, well, wait a minute. I can understand how God might use a political system like, like America, so democracy. But why would he even let a system like the one we observe in North Korea, dictatorship, exist? People are getting hurt by terroristic, narcissistic egomaniacs. They are. Yet, even though I might not comprehend this, God is still at work and is, in his infinite wisdom, using that very bad system in North Korea to this day for the benefit of his kingdom. Even as he used the political system in Germany at the time of Hitler, the political system in Russia at the time of Stalin, the political system of China at the time of Mao Zedong, and of course we can go back to the political system of Rome in the time of Paul. How do I know that? How can I say that? Because the Bible does. Listen to the words of Paul again. He writes, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul doesn't say some systems are authorized by God and others not. No. He uses the word, pumped us all. And yeah, I do understand that that's hard for us to grasp. You know why? Because there have been and there are a lot of political systems operating solely under the authority of God who use their power for what? For evil, not for good. When they do so, to the point of seeking not only to preserve order in a society as God's servant, but to elevate themselves to the place of God, even to the point of openly opposing God, as was the case in Lenin's Russia and Mayo's China, these governing systems become, listen to this, Antichrist. That's what John is suggesting through his apocalyptic words in Revelation 13. He states the beast comes out of the sea, a place of sin, has seven heads and ten horns, both God's numbers. What he's saying is the beast is using his powers not towards the good of God's kingdom, but towards its bad. The beast has risen up and is trying to become God. Did you notice that? The beast in John's apocalyptic picture not only has stolen God's numbers, seven heads, ten horns, but it is written on its head blasphemous names. Blasphemy is what? It's a sin against God. It's the proclamation that I am God and you, God, can just step out of my way. This is how political systems acting as Antichrist actually act. It's been going on a long time. I appreciate how the revelation weaves this thought into the picture. Notice the characteristics of the beast. The Revelation says, he, the beast, was like a leopard, his feet were like bears, his mouth was like a lion's. I'm hoping that those images ring a bell for you, because they should. We've seen them before, all the way back in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Remember this? The bear is who? Persia. The leopard? The Greek empire. The lion? Rome. All of these are political systems that would come and go as God authorized, all in their own right, acting at times in the capacity of God. 
resulting in what? I don't want you to miss this. Resulting in the worship of the dragon. This is significant. Don't, don't miss this. Note what's happening. As a political system misuses the power God has given to it, the result is the worship of Satan. Literally. Now, understand this. Paul's not talking about people being led by their governments into satanic houses of worship, where they bow down and say, oh, great Satan. No. Much more subtle. What he's talking about is something that if you'll open your eyes up, you will see happening right in front of you today. My question is, do we see it? I mean, do we see it right here in America? Because I'm telling you, it's happening. I want to use an example here. I think most of you know that this past year, the Supreme Court of the United States acted to overturn a law that has given national support to abortion for many years, Roe versus Wade. The day that Roe v. Wade was adopted into law, that was an Antichrist day. He celebrated. Today, we're on day two of that story. Why? Because the Supreme Court overturned the law and returned regulations of abortion back to each state. Let me ask you this. What has the response been? Immediate pushback. From where? Well, from groups that profit from the abortion business, Planned Parenthood particularly. In fact, according to Students for Life in America, Planned Parenthood performed 383,460 abortions in 2021. That equals, by the way, 1,050 abortions per day. Their profit for doing this, $1.7 billion. Yeah, they're going to push back. We expect that. Additionally, Activist groups, activists, professional organizers, all pushed back. But what about this one? Pushed back from the top, from the President of the United States. In October 2022, as midterm elections approached, Joe Biden approached the podium with some of the strongest pushback against the Supreme Court's overturn of Roe v. Wade. At the Democratic Convention, the President pledged that if Democrats would retain control of the Senate, he would ask for legislation codifying the rights to abortion across all states. So simply, the President of the United States said, I have the power, should my party prevail in Congress, to take what the Supreme Court has done and nullify it. I, you know what? I say thanks be to God the Democratic Party did not retain control of the Congress. I'm going to get pointed here. Many people try to expect, express the issue of abortion as though it is a political issue. Now, no doubt, there are politics behind what we legislate regarding abortion. But the issue itself is not primarily political. It's theological. It's an issue at the heart of God. Back to the nature of Antichrist. When the president of the United States, or other political leaders for that matter, people who occupy an office established by God and who are under his authority, set themselves into a position whereby they determine theological issues in a way that is not only contrary to, but combative towards the will of God. They are acting as anti-Christoi, as Antichrist. I'm going to make this as clear as I can. When the president of the United States calls abortion a health care issue or a reproductive care issue without recognizing that in its essence it is a theological issue, that president is acting as Antichrist. When the president of the United States or another political leader proclaims that abortion, no matter the circumstance, is an issue of human rights, meaning not the right of the baby, but the parent alone, the president is acting in the capacity of Antichrist. When the president of the United States suggests that an embryo in their mother's womb is not truly a human being, 
They're acting as God. They're saying, God, I don't care what your word says. I know better. This embryo is not human. When a president says that they're acting as Antichrist. In other words, I'm giving an example. It's just one example. You can expand on it exponentially. But it's an example that's relevant to what's happening in our time and what John and the Revelation is urging us to do. The Bible wants us to pay attention to the fact that there are two realms in which we must really watch for what's happening because Antichrists are at work. One is the realm of the church. The other is the realm of the politic. So I want to continue with this next week. We're going to look at the second half of this text in Revelation. But before we go, allow me to pose a couple of questions. Question one. I want you to think about the two realms in which the Bible teaches us that the Antichrist is active religion, church, and the politic. Over the last 12 months, are you able to name at least one way in which you have seen Antichrist at work in each of these two realms, church, politic? Question two. We'll get into this in more depth next week. But as you think about the nature of the work of Antichrist, how would you describe the goal of Antichrist? What is Antichrist seeking to do? What does he want? Question three. I want you to really think about this. Throughout this podcast, I, I boldly applied the biblical use of the term Antichrist to people within the realm of religion, church, and politics. Here, here's my question. How would people within your circles, think about the people who, who you live with and around you, how would they respond to you were you to publicly apply the term Antichrist to a specific political leader? Would they look at you as though you were a bit off? Would they call you crazy? Would they accept your use of the term? Would they push back against your use of the term? What I'm trying to get at is the question of how foreign this scriptural teaching seems to be, not only within the public realm, but even within the church. I wonder why that's true. Well, that's all for this time. I really appreciate you tuning in to this podcast. It means so much to me. I'm going to ask that you pray for myself and my family. My commitment each day is to pray for you and lift you up. I'm very thankful for you. So until next time, I, I wish you a God-sized week.